Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Morning all. We okay? Just um, before we start, a couple of free books to give away. The book that Johnny mentioned, which is for sale, we've got for free. So we've got two copies of uh, Church in Hard Places, so if you would like one, you can come and get one from me afterwards. You just have to read it and promise me that you will. Then we have about eight copies of a new book called God, Is He Out There?, which is the first in a series of ten. Uh, it's basically a resource to take someone from saved to serving in a local church setting, but specifically written for guys or girls from a council estate, a scheme background. So if you're working in that context, you think this might be useful for you, come and speak to me or Charlie, and we've got about eight copies of that. Uh, I will pass over Johnny's slur about uh, yesterday and the fact we've got decreased crowds. I'll put it down to envy on his part, (laughs) and I'll tell him to go and read Psalm 73 from yesterday. Shall we pray? Ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would come and speak to us from the scriptures. We have no desire just to hear the words of some bloke, but we have an earnest desire to hear your voice. And so we pray that you would come and in the pages of your word we would see Christ and that we would see him with a clarity that only comes in the power of your spirit. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn briefly, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20 in your Bibles. If you weren't with us yesterday, we started off by looking at Psalm 73, and Asaph, the Psalm writer, went on this journey from a covetous heart, envying the prosperity of the wicked. He then came to the place of clarity as he entered the sanctuary of God, and that moved him from covetousness to contentment. And this morning what we're going to do is dig down a little bit deeper into uh, the green, envious heart that is in within each one of us and try and work out what is going there and how can we follow that journey of Asaph from covetousness to clarity to contentment. Because Asaph is not the only geezer in the Bible who struggles with this. You see where we're going? That's the map. Are you happy? Yep. Great. Let's read Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now we'll begin by trying to define covetousness, but before I tell you what it is, I want to show you in some other stories from the scriptures. Because the green eyes of Asaph do come in other individuals in God's word. We could turn to Genesis chapter 3 and we could look at Adam and specifically at Eve. In Genesis 3, Eve sees the fruit of the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye. And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, 
in Eve, you see those green eyes and that beast that we saw yesterday of a covetous heart. What's fascinating about that is the tree of where the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat, it was pleasing to the eye. But so was every other tree in the Garden of Eden. Every other tree is given that same description in Genesis 1 and 2. So it wasn't that God held out a plate to Eve and on it was like 15 rich tea biscuits. You know rich teas? They're good, but they're quite normal. It wasn't that there was like 15 rich teas and then in the middle of the plate was a chocolate fudge cake and God said, now you can eat the rich teas, but don't eat the chocolate fudge cake. No, every tree in the garden was a chocolate fudge cake. There was just one that he said, you must not eat from this tree. But Eve's covetous heart wanted the one that she couldn't have. And she saw, and she took, and she disobeyed God, and her disobedience led to fear. Her fear led to hiding. Her hiding led to lying. And as we know, that led to dying, not just for her, but to her descendants. But what you've got to see in Genesis chapter 3 is it all starts in her heart. We could tell the story of Achan. Achan comes up in the book of Joshua in chapter 7, and Achan, after Jericho has been plundered, he sees amid this massive pile of plunder in chapter 7, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. And he confesses later on, I coveted them and I took them. If you know the story, he takes them back to his house and he hides them. And when it all comes down to him, Joshua says, you've not only caused devastation amid your own people, but this is going to come down on your own head. He coveted, he stole, he hid, eventually he confesses, but it led to trouble and death. But ask the question, where did it start? It starts in his heart. Next, you can go to the story of David. You'll know the story. David is on the roof of his palace, being a bit of a pervert, watching a woman bathe. Where should he have been? He should have been on the front line of the battlefield with the rest of his army. But as he sees the woman, he decides he wants to have her, and so he gets her, he beds her. He then needs to come up with the cover story of all cover stories. And so what does he do? He gets Uriah back from the battlefield. He tries to get him to sleep with his wife to cover the whole thing up, but Uriah is a man of honor. He shows far more honor than the king does. David says, all right, let's get him drunk. Then he'll sleep with his wife. But still Uriah says no. And so David pushes the boundaries and he says, right, here's the deal. Here's how the play is going to go down. Put him back in the battlefield where the fighting is most intense. And when it gets to the heat of the battle, everyone withdraw that he might be the lightning bolt of their fury. The story of David goes from coveting to bedding to lying to manipulating to killing But ask yourself the question, where did it start? It started in his heart. The story of Ahab comes in 1 Kings 21. And if ever there was a sweet setup for a story, it is this. Two men with one piece of choice property. 
there's going to be a fight. Ahab sees Naboth's vineyard and he wants it and he must have it and so he's going to use his power to do so. And so he approaches and offers the guy a pretty shady deal and he is told no. And Ahab gets his teenager back on and he goes back to his room, he sulks and he says, I'm not eating anything until I get this vineyard. He turns into this little 16-year-old brat. And so he then devises a scheme. He says, let's get a couple of scoundrels, let's make up some lies and let's take Naboth and we will stone him to death. Again, the story goes something like seeing, coveting, sulking, killing, and then bearing the consequences. But ask yourself the question, where did it start? It starts in his heart. Final one, Gehazi, 2 Kings chapter 5. Gehazi is the servant of Elisha. He's God's prophet. And when Naaman comes to the prophet for healing from his leprosy, and he is is cured and cleansed in the power of God, Naaman says, listen, can can I pay you back for this? You know, can I give you some remuneration for your services? NHS didn't exist, and he just presumed that you'd have to pay for it, right? Elisha, as a good man of God, says, no, I'll take nothing from you. But Gehazi, he gets his little Del Boy on at this point and thinks, I could make some cash here. This time next year, I could be a millionaire. So he chases after Naaman and says, devises a scheme, tells some lies. He says, listen, Naaman, some prophets have turned up. They could do with some cash, some clothes. Can you cough up and I'll take it back to them? He's a snake. Naaman thinks, yeah, sure. This guy's Elijah's boy, I'll trust him. Gives him the money. Again, Gehazi goes back. He stashes his stuff in his house. But Elijah, as the prophet of God, knows what's going on. And the very leprosy that Naaman has been cleansed from now clings to Gehazi. Again, the story goes something like coveting, lying, hiding, lying, leprous. But ask yourself the question, where did it all start? It started in his heart. Now, let's try and come to some kind of definition of what is it to covet? What is it to be envious? And I've given about four because I couldn't decide on one. All right? Let's go for a few. Here we go. Coveting. A desire that is dissatisfied with God, dominates your mind, and dictates your actions. Now, the desire is not a bad thing. Desire is a God-given thing, right? So God is good. The giver is good. The gifts are good. Our heart is where the problem is. It's when that desire begins to dominate, give birth to a dictator that gives birth to death. Another one, it's a desire that turns your neighbor into a competitor to be conquered rather than a companion to be loved. So you can never love your neighbor and covet your neighbor simultaneously. Or it's a desire that turns your neighbor's stuff into your idol, or when you desire to have something that actually begins to have you. So go back to Exodus 20, and one of the commandments was, do not covet your neighbor's donkey. I've never coveted a donkey, all right? My neighbor doesn't have one. But imagine I was to covet a donkey. I want to have it. That donkey then dominates me to the point where it's as if it's sitting with a little Xbox controller controlling my every move. 
The donkey drives me. You see? So whether it's Gehazi who is lusting after and coveting the stuff of Naaman, it drives him to chase him. Or whether it's Ahab, it drives him to pursue Naboth and to devise a scheme. It ought to be that a desire for God drives us, but covetousness says, no, I'll put an idol in God's place, and it is that desire that will drive me. It puts someone other than God in the driving seats of our hearts. It all starts in the heart. Now, in the Bible, the heart is a complex thing, but it's made up of at least three things. The mind, the affections, that's your desire, and your will. Mind, affections, will. Doesn't it sometimes feel that out of those three, your affections, your desires, are like a massive elephant that just charges powerfully around wherever, you, wherever it wants to go and your mind and your will are like two little mice sat on the head of the elephant trying to control the beast? Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? So the, your desires are this elephant-like thing like uh, the Jungle Book where it's going, oh, the elephant parade, and it's just devastating any tree and anything that's in its way. And the mind and the will are like these mice that are just holding on saying, hold on tight, boys, this thing's mental. Our desires are a God-given thing, but they are a powerful thing that will trample over God or neighbor to get exactly what it wants. It's powerful. And you see these powerful desires, these powerful, envious desires everywhere. Think of kids, right? Because you see this covetous heart in a little kid in a nursery. Is anyone here like 30 years old? Is anyone around that age? Anyone? How old are you? 28. What's your name again? Tim. Tim. Right, so imagine me and Tim. I'm 30, he's 28, and we're in nursery together. I must have been kept back a couple of years, right? And nursery full of toys, all the toys a kid could want. And I'm playing away with a little toy in the corner. And all of a sudden, Tim picks up another toy. At that point, which toy do I want? Which one? Tim's toy. Because every kid, in seeing a toy in the hands of another child, wants that toy. At that moment, all the other toys in the room disappear. I want that toy. Why? I want what someone else has. It's the natural inclination of a sinful heart to be covetous and envious. Think of a kid's birthday party. Every kid in the room at a birthday party is massively unhappy because there is only one kid in the room opening presents. Isn't that true? Happy birthday. No one's happy apart from the one kid. (laughs) Massive pile of presents, and I'm sitting here twiddling my thumbs. That, by the way, is why party bags exist. Party bags are an evidence of the fall trying to pacify the covetous desires of every other child in the room. Isn't that true? Okay, you're going to kick up a fuss because you're coveting him. Have a bag. Oh. Isn't that right? And we can laugh at it in kids but it is rife in us. Coveting is that 
little twinge of disappointment when someone else gets something we want. It's when we react badly when a co-worker gets the promotion that we wanted. Or when our roommate finds a romance when we're still single. Or when a friend goes on a holiday that we could never afford. Or when someone else's church is having a particular period of growth. Or when some other missions agency gets the funding that we desperately need. You see it in your own competitiveness. Why is it I hate to lose? Why is it I get grumpy when my wife beats me at a game of basketball? It means nothing, but I'm prone to exaggerate stories that make me look good and exaggerate the errors of others that make them look bad. Not only my competitiveness, you see it in our constant comparisons. How many of us, even just from leaving our house this morning to getting here, have been doing multiple comparisons in our mind at the same time? Their house and my house, their car and my car, their clothes and my clothes, their ministry, their, my ministry. We're constantly trying to assess ourselves and find out where we are in the pecking order. We see it in our own complaining. How many of us get our Ahab on every now and then? I'm going to my room to sulk. How many of us are actually quite stingy rather than being generous. Because envious people are very infrequently generous because why would I give someone else something that would mean that I lose something? See, we are the little kids in the nursery desperate for that toy. We are the child at the birthday party who must have a party bag to pacify our desires because our desires drive us, don't they? The elephant is desperate to have anything anyone else has and we're willing to trample over God and neighbor to get it. So let me just give us a bunch of things that are going to help us work out what is going on in our hearts when we covet. And once we've understood covetousness, we can then try and move ourselves towards contentment. So, six things. What is covetousness? Firstly, it's idolatry. The 10th commandment is a repetition of the first. Because whatever you covet, you idolize, and whatever you idolize, you covet. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, say the same thing. They reach back across the commandments and shake hands and say, we agree. Because the sin behind every sin is idolatry, covetousness, envy, is a commandment not to desire anything more than God. It is a command not to love anything more than God. Paul spells that out in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Envy is when something else is in the driving seat of your desires. Secondly, covetousness is discontentment. Coveting doesn't just replace God. Coveting is an affront to God. It is an aggressive assault on God. It says, God, who you are and what you have given me is not enough. Covetousness sings, great is your unfaithfulness, God. God, you don't know what you're doing. I'm going to take this into my own hands. God, you failed to give me stuff. You've given it to someone else. How dare you? God you're not enough. It's even the garden, surrounded by paradise, by everything that would satisfy her, including intimacy with God, and she says, I want more. It's like saying to your mum after a massive Sunday lunch, 
hmm, I fancy a McDonald's now. Great is your unfaithfulness. I'm going to covet more. Third, covetousness leads to other sins. See, covetousness is always what precedes our overt behaviors. It's the root from which almost every sin springs. Before David committed adultery, before he murdered, or before Gehazi stole, or before anyone bears false witness, they first long and covet for a different set of circumstances. Covetousness is the first domino that falls when someone falls into sin. Eve, Achan, David, Ahab, Gehazi, almost every other commandment is broken following number 10. Fourth, covetousness never brings satisfaction. If you're taking notes, a verse that's worthy of writing down, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. Whoever loves money is never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. There was a guy called J.D. Rockefeller who was the, at one time, I think the wealthiest man in the world. He was the first American to be a billionaire. And a journalist asked him, J.D., how much money is enough? His response was, just a little bit more. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Cool Runnings. It's about the Jamaican bobsleigh team. Anyone seen it? We actually named our dog after Sanka, the character with the lucky egg. But in Cool Runnings, the coach turns to one of the Jamaican bobsleigh guys and he says this, a gold medal is a wonderful thing, but if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. That's deep for Disney, isn't it? (laughs) But actually, all these guys and girls coming back from the Olympics right now will probably be massively discontent. I bet there is a slump after the Olympics have finished. It's not enough. See, covetousness is like the heart that tries to find a thirst quenched by drinking seawater. It's like trying to satisfy the elephant of your desires with one piece of couscous. It's not going to happen. Good things were never meant to be God things. They cannot bear the weight of your desires and they will always disappoint and never satisfy. Fifth, covetousness chokes spiritual life. You know the parable of the sower? In Mark chapter 4, Jesus says this, Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the words, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. You see, a heart that is groveling over the world will never be growing in the Word. My guess is that there are many who should be more mature in the Christian faith than they are, whose maturity is stunted by their covetousness. Because this commandment, by the way, is how you can tell whether someone is actually mature in their faith. An immature Christian can give the impression of maturity by doing all the right things. But a mature believer knows that the sign of maturity is not so much doing the right things, but desiring the right thing. You can fake doing, you cannot fake desiring. 
Number six, covetousness destroys the soul. James 1 verse 14, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. James asks a very fundamental question. Why do I do what I do? And the answer is not my circumstances. The answer is not my background. The answer is, I do what I do because I want to do it. My sin and my death will be a result of my evil desires. There's an old guy who wrote this, As a ferryman takes in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his boat, so a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition. Coveting will sink you down to hell as fast as any other sin. Here's the paradox. Here's the irony that if you live your life consumed by covetous desires that seek to gain everything, you'll actually lose everything. But if you live your life desiring Jesus and content to lose everything, you'll gain everything. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Yet forfeit his soul. Answer, nothing. We thought yesterday, if you wanted to add a seventh covetousness hinders mission that is to say if we envy the world we will never take the gospel to the world because if I think that the world has something that I need I'm never going to think that the world needs something that I have covetousness will hinder and hamstring the great commission and actually I think that is especially true when you're trying to labor in an area of extreme poverty. See, if I was to set up a church plant in one of the nicest places in Edinburgh and say, listen, I'd love you to move in, come and get involved, my guess is I've had people queuing out the door. But say I want you to move into a housing scheme and you'll have people running out the door. Why? Because it doesn't fit with, well, I want to increase my estate, I want to make sure that I've got nice stuff, I want my friends to think that I am succeeding and prosperous and all these kind of things going into that type of context doesn't satisfy the green-eyed beast of my covetous heart covetousness can hinder the mission of the gospel now it's worth asking the question what is the opposite of covetousness It's a good question to ask of all the Ten Commandments because in fulfilling the Ten Commandments it's not just about what you don't do but what you do do. So what would be the opposite of the Sixth Commandment that says do not murder? What's the opposite? Yeah, preserve life. Protect life. What would be the opposite of the Seventh Commandment? Do not commit adultery. Fidelity, be faithful. Love your wife, love your husband. Maintain purity and singleness. What will be the opposite of the Eighth Commandment that says do not steal? Be generous. Yeah, great. What will be the opposite of the Ninth Commandment? Do not lie. Tell the truth. There's a great song, by the way, to remind yourself of how the commandments go in order. In the Tenth Commandment, the Lord God said to me, do not covet, do not lie. And you can go all the way down. I'll teach you it later. 
But what's the opposite of the tenth commandment? Do not covet. I think you've got a couple of options. One, I think the opposite of covetousness is love your neighbor. Because again, you will never, you can never love your neighbor and covet your neighbor at the same time. But I also think the opposite of do not covet is contentment. It's not chasing after other things. It's not the elephant trampling over God and neighbor to find what it wants, but it is the elephant sitting down satisfied, at rest. It's Asaph yesterday in Psalm 73 saying, Earth has nothing I desire besides you. The elephant's not charging around with the mind and the will trying to hold on to the reins. The elephant is satisfied so that the mind and the will can get on with what they want. It is Asaph saying, God is with me. And I want to show you this specifically in the story of the Apostle Paul just as we finish. The Apostle Paul himself, like Asaph, goes on a journey from coveting to contentment. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Romans 7, verse 7. The Apostle writes, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by that commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. When Paul read, do not covet, the command leapt up and killed him. Now, to me, it fascinates me. Why would Paul choose the 10th commandment here? He could have chosen any of them. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. Why didn't he choose commandment number six, do not murder? I think in the Apostle Paul, he realized that the sin of covetousness is not just about what you do, but it's about what you desire. And so this desire commandment brought him death. I can sympathize with this as a son of a church family. So I grew up, my granddad was a pastor, my dad was an elder, and I never did the whole rebellious teenage thing, right? I was always fairly well-behaved child. I mean, my dad will listen to this and he'll say, that's rubbish. But do you know what I mean? There was never kind of an overt rebellion into drugs or alcohol or all that kind of stuff. I think if you'd looked at me, you would have said, there's a guy doing the Christian life. But when you read the Ten Commandments, here's what I realized as a good church Christian kid. I had been using church to satisfy my own desires. So a little self-righteous, self-promoting teenager, I'd used God and used church for self-protection, approval, praise, comfort, acceptance. I desired all these things. I had never desired God. 
Never. But if that is you, the tenth commandment jumps up and bites you and kills you. Because it says, listen, God doesn't just see the public acts in front of your parents. He sees the secret thoughts and desires of your heart. He says, you are more sinful than you ever imagined. And I read that and I died. We need to preach the 10th commandment to church kids so that they realize that they are more sinful than they ever realized. Even if they have never overtly rebelled against their parents or against Christ. But like the Apostle Paul, there is a glorious movement from Romans 7 to Philippians chapter 3. Come with me to Philippians 3. And again, we'll read from verse 7. Paul writes, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the resurrection of the dead. Flick over to Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but I had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The move from covetousness to contentment comes through the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. When Paul says, even though the law killed me, Christ stepped up and saved me. That the covetous heart that deserved hell, Christ suffered on the cross in my place and handed me a record of righteousness that I did not deserve. And so Paul says, I want to know Christ. Not just I want him to save me, I want him. Not just I'm going to use him, I want to know and love and enjoy Jesus as my everything. He is surpassingly worthy. Now again, why, why go here at a missions conference? What is going to keep you going if you are in the mission fields amid the slog, the isolation, the discouragements, the challenges of ministry? What will keep you going? Because we want to keep going, right? I want to go to the end. I want to reach the finish line. I want to reach heaven breathless. My calling is not to be a living specimen of a man whose lot is to be preserved. My lot is to be a living sacrifice to be spent. I want to go to the end. What's going to keep me going? 
It's tempting to answer that by saying a love for people. But that won't be enough. Here's why. Because people aren't that lovely. Are they? In our experience in Grace Mount, my wife has had things thrown through her windows. She's had abuse hurled at her in the street. We've had people staying in our house who have repeatedly come home drunks, puking up all over our doorstep. We've had guys repeatedly coming into our house with cannabis and smoking it. We've had human excrements smeared up our bedroom, our, not our bedroom, our bathroom walls. We've had our name and our reputation dragged through the mud. We've had it all. A love for people will not keep me going because people are not lovely. Me first. All right? I'm not lovely. The only thing that will keep me going, the only thing that will maintain a joy, whatever the circumstance, will be contentment in Jesus. See, that phrase in Philippians 4 is a scary one. Whatever the circumstance. Because think of us in this room over the next year. You don't know the whatever the circumstances that lie ahead. Sure, there'll be good times. There'll be laughter, there'll be weddings, there'll be babies born, there'll be people saved, there'll be ministries that grow. But whatever the circumstances of the year ahead will also involve funerals, hospital visits, sadness, affairs, murders, more natural disasters. What will keep you going? The surpassing worth of Christ. Only a contentment in Jesus will help us endure suffering. Only a contentment in Jesus will help us fight sin. Only a contentment in Jesus will maintain our zeal for world mission. The elephant-like desires of our hearts need to be captivated by the eternal person of Christ. And a contentment in him will maintain an obedience to him in the Great Commission. I want to know Christ, not just in his powerful resurrection, but even in his sufferings, because he's surpassingly worthy. Shall I pray? Our Father in heaven, we are those for whom your law has jumped up and slain us. And yet we thank you that we can say, when Christ died, our old man died. And when Christ rose, we rose, clothed in his righteousness. And so, Father, we pray, satisfy us every morning with your unfailing love. And grant us a contentment that says, earth has nothing I desire besides you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Anne. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.